Welcome everyone to our first BJJ podcast of 2022 and for the month of January. I'm Andrew Duckworth and a happy new year and more welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. We hope you've all had an enjoyable festive period with your family and friends and as we hope we return to some normality over the next year. As always, we'd also like to thank you all for your continued comments and support, as well as a big thanks to our many authors and colleagues who take part in our series. Along with our monthly podcasts highlighting some of the papers published here at the journal, we'll also be continuing our special edition podcasts with the specialty editors here at the journal, as well as some further episodes from our Insights from the US series. So we do encourage you to look out for these over the upcoming months. So moving to today, I had the pleasure of being joined by three of my colleagues from here in Edinburgh to discuss their paper entitled Long-Term Mortality Rates and Associated Risk Factors Following Primary and Revision the Arthroplasty, which has been published in the January edition of the BJJ. Firstly, I would like to welcome one of our superstar trainees here in Edinburgh, Liam Yap, who is the lead author on the paper. Welcome, Liam, and a big thank you for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for the invite to speak today. Liam is joined by two of his senior authors for the paper and two of my exceptional friends and colleagues here in Edinburgh, Chloe Scott and Nick Clement. Chloe, it's great to have you back with us. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me again. And Nick, it's always always great to speak to you. It's always nice to be invited back after being late last time. Thank you. <laughs> so, Chloe, if I if I could maybe start with you and and the and the study, the aim of your study, which utilised data on over one hundred seven thousand patients from the Scottish Arthroplasty Project, was to determine the long term term mortality rate following primary and revision the arthroplasty as well as to identify factors associated with this. So if you can maybe give us a brief introduction to the paper and some background as to why it's so important to consider the risk of death for these patients in terms of the influence on the risk of revision. Of course, thanks. What a great question to start with. So one of the key metrics um, of success in orthopaedics and in arthroplasty in particular is obviously implant survival. And we typically assess this using the Kaplan-Meier method. So this method examines the cumulative survival of an implant but it only considers a single event, which in the context of neoarthroplasty is implant revision. So in essence, it estimates the probability of a revision at a certain time point, assuming that the patients cannot die. Mm. Um, however, when we perform long-term survival analyses, there are actually four contribute to our results and how we interpret them, including intact pa- implants in a live patient's patients who are lost to follow-up, implant failures, obviously, which is what we're looking for, or patient death. So alternatively speaking, the death of the patient is a competing risk for the implant. And Kaplan-Meier analysis deals with this by treating either lost or deceased patients as so-called censored data. And by doing that, it assumes that the risk of implant revision is independent of the risk of of, uh, patient death. So when it does that, it theoretically overestimates the cumulative risk of revision when there are competing risks. And actually, this has been demonstrated nicely in a recent uh, systematic review comparing survivorship from Kaplan-Meier analysis to an alternative competing risks model of survival. So we're all used to looking at implant survival data from the National Joint Registry, for example, um, and from this and using NJR data, we know that the risk of revision of knee arthroplasty in particular is higher in younger patients. But again, the NJR doesn't include mortality data. Um, Many older patients will unfortunately um, have died before their implant could fail. Conversely, patients expected to live several decades after their arthroplasty may have shorter lifespans. 
So the longer your life expectancy is, the greater your lifetime risk of revision is. But interestingly, the previous estimates of lifetime risk of revision have used mortality rates from the general population, assuming these to be the same as the alpha population. And this is actually quite a big assumption, which our study that we're talking about today goes on to show is, is probably incorrect. Yeah, thanks for that's a really nice overview of actually of, of of what was sort of sort of really the aim of the paper and why the the I suppose the paper was sort of set up, isn't it? And Nick, if I can come to you next, and before maybe we move on to some of the details of the study and sort of following on nicely from what Chloe said, can you give the listeners an idea a bit more idea about the current literature in the in the area and how and how you know as Chloe says, as we've used general population mortality rates in the past and how that affects the data we see on things like lifetime risk or revision for knee replacement and how it's been considered before. I think probably the best example is kind of the Markov models that are often used and to predict cost-effective analysis and along those lines. But just to touch on what Chloe said earlier on, it wasn't until just very recently I started to read the NGR in a bit more depth and realised all the figures that's produced is risk of revision. So their Kaplan-Meier curves are sometimes censored for loss to follow, but they're not censored for for death. Mm-hmm. So, so all the papers like I've just done one quite recently with with the Newcastle group, and so it's a probability of revision that's what's presented. So potentially you might have a probability of revision of ten percent at ten years, but actually you've lost twenty five percent of your population as Liam's just shown. So actually you do your survivorship is far less. You've only got seventy five patients. Mm. At ten years, or seventy-five percent at ten years, so it will be ten divided by seventy-five, which obviously is far a different percentage as opposed to ten divided by a hundred. Yeah, uh, uh, and that's that's just the pennies just dropped with me with the NGR data just recently. But but just to go back to the original question, so sorry, Andrew, I got I got sidetracked there. I think one of the big things for me in the the, the, the things I've done in the past with Markov models, you, you, you and, and a lot of randomised trials try and do that now after two years of randomised trial of robotic versus something else or one knee versus another, and some health economist comes along and models data for the next until that patient dies and the average life is about fifteen years after after. A, um, hit on knee replacement for an average 70-year-old. So ablation data, and as Liam's shown, for the first 10 years, it is far less. Mm. So actually, if you're doing like a cost economic model, actually you're, you're bang for your bucks even more because you're going to get a better outcome. Mm-hmm. But also your revision rate might go up ever so slightly because the population surviving might go up. So that would have so so I think it's great data for that. And certainly for for me going forward, maybe he's doing similar sort of Markov models and studies like that. I, I think this data is essential. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. And I think it's a really that's really great from both of you just ha- explaining. You know what it really puts into context the reason why this study is important and why why you, you all three of you decided to do it. So if we move on to the study design, and I'll probably come to you, Liam, next if that's okay. This was a big data retrospective study. I utilized data from the SAP, as we said, it's one hundred and seven thousand one hundred twenty one patients, and they were all underwent primary or revision knee replacement, and it was over a period from the first of January nineteen ninety eight to the end of December 2019. So, Liam, if you could maybe give us a brief overview for for listeners who are not aware of it, a brief overview of the SAP, you know, an idea about the robustness of the data, I suppose, it collects and, and how the data for this study was sourced. Sure. So the Scottish arthroplasty project national audit of all arthroplasty procedures undertaken in Scotland, it was set up in the... It's produced annual reports since about 2001. It's overseen by a steering committee 
comprised of surgeons, anaesthetists, data analysts, managers and patient representatives. And it's wholly funded by the Scottish Government and is overseen by NHS Public Health Scotland. The data that it receives is primarily obtained from two sources. One is the Scottish Morbidity Record 01, which is an electronic health record, and it has a permanent linkage to the National Records of Scotland NHS Central Register, which is a record of all births and deaths which occur in Scotland. And they are able to achieve this through utilising the unique uh, identifier which is assigned to every patient in Scotland from birth, which is called the Community Health Index Number or the CHI Number. So in essence, any patient who undergoes a total joint replacement in Scotland is able to be accurately followed up for the duration of their lifespan. And in terms of data quality, well, routinely collected data sources are, are not perfect. I think that's well established and a fair, fair thing to say. So NHS Public Health Scotland actually regularly perform internal audit and quality assurance processes for all the data sets which they house. And the most recent audit data that we have suggests that diagnostic accuracy for common comorbidities we are interested in is approximately 96% and procedural coding such as primary or revision procedures is about 94%. So it's not perfect, but it's it's pretty good for what for what it is. Yeah, no, I agree, Liam. I think that's really good. It sort of highlights, you know, the robustness of the data there. And I think like, as you say, highlighting the uniqueness of the CHI and, and what that provides us with, there's not many places really in the world that could that can do that in terms of the uniqueness of the CHI and linking those those data sets. So if we move on to sort of the, the study, just briefly, you know, what, what were your inclusion criteria for the study and, and sort of how you, did you deal with patients who had gone to gone, because over quite a long study period, maybe multiple procedures? So the inclusion criteria was any patient who had unilateral or bilateral simultaneous or the first knee of staged bilateral procedures. We considered that the index procedure and specifically to avoid counting death in the same patient twice, because we knew that that would negatively um, influence the estimated risk of death in those yeah. patients. Yeah. And, and obviously, I always ask people what their primary outcome measure with, but it's obviously mortality for this, but how you sort of define that. And and maybe just before we move on to the results, in terms of, you know, revision and, re, and how that's defined in the SAP, what can you just give us a listen to an idea about that? Yeah, so our primary outcome, as you state, was the patient mortality at any time point following primary revision and the arthroplasty. And I think it's important to mention the definition of revision that the SAP uses. So they state that a revision procedure should be considered to be permanent removal or exchange of knee arthroplasty components. So specifically, we did not consider secondary patellar research as a revision for this study. And that's obviously quite different to how um, other registries like the NGR would consider that procedure. So I think it is kind of, it is important to note that. No, I, I absolutely, I totally agree. And before we sort of, that will lead us on into the results, but just before we do that, Nick, if I could just briefly come back to yourself. What if you just, because obviously it's something that something you talk about in the study is about the, something called the standardised mortality ratio. Could you just give our listeners a brief overview of that and then what analyses were performed in relation to the outcomes that you looked at? Uh, so standardised mortality ratio is used quite a lot. Most people, I'm sure, have probably come across it in like fraction negafemas, probably, mm-hmm. as opposed to within arthroplasty. So standardised mortality ratios, you need to know what it's standardised to, of course. And so that will be in your method somewhere, and you have to sift that out. Most will be age and sex, but it can also be 
ethnicity as well it, and and even some of the cardiac studies and diabetic studies you can actually match for that as well if you if you're really going for it so for for example you, the average 80 year old in scotland or 10 percent of 80 year olds if you get 100 10 percent are dead at a year so as opposed to a fraction like a female where 30 percent are dead at a year so 30 divided by 10 that's that's three so standardized mortality ratio of three and that's generally what fraction hecafemas are Mm-hmm. Proximal humerus is around about two. This radius is about one and a half. So that's been done before mm-hmm. from Edinburgh, actually. Uh, yeah. Mike Robinson's study. So that's that standardised mortality ratio. It's just so you have some kind of just because somebody gives you a mortality rate, you don't know whether it's high or low. Or f- f- so it just gives you a ratio, and and and, and obviously if it's it, if it's greater than one, it's it, it's high, and if it's less than one, it's lower. And Liam used mortality figures from the Scottish office of. Uh, survival or predicted survival according to age and sex and he does some wonderful stuff with R that I have no idea how to do Uh, (laughs) and came up with some lovely figures and tables I could not agree more they are lovely figures and tables so if we move on to the results then and that leads us in nicely the so in the study there were just over 98,000 patients who underwent a primary knee replacement just over 8,000 underwent a revision so the median age at surgery was 68 years and the median follow-up for the group was just over seven years so if I come back to you again what do we find in terms of your primary outcome in terms of the primary knee replacement cohort and, and and what factors did you find that were associated with an increased risk of mortality in that patient group so for the primary knee cohort we had 27474 deaths um, that occurred within the period of follow up so that was approximately 27 uh, percent of the of the cohort and when we performed Catholic survivorship estimates we found that about 73 percent of the cohort were actually alive at 10 years and of those who had follow-up up to you know 20 years that dropped down to 30 percent so quite a significant drop off and that's where we get the figure of about a third of or a quarter of patients have died by 10 years and so that gave us an overall SMR of about 0.74. So as Nick already alluded to, SMR over one would suggest an increased risk of of mortality compared to the general population, whereas below one would suggest a survival advantage or, or, or benefit. So these patients are living longer than expected compared to their age and sex matched peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that that actually persisted for about 12 years following primary knee arthroplasty before settling to rates consistent with the general population. And when we looked at what factors may be additionally associated with mortality within that first 10 years. We found obviously increasing age at the time of surgery, which is perhaps not that surprising. Male sex, a diagnosis of inflammatory polyarthropathy, greater socioeconomic deprivation, revision for infection, and greater number of medical comorbidities. Interestingly, we didn't find any association with aseptic revision, which I guess we can talk about uh, later on. Yeah, no, absolutely, Liam. And and in terms of looking at, so that's for the the primary cohort. What did you find for the revision cohort? How was that similar or different? So the findings for the revision knee cohort were, were very similar, frankly. So there was two thousand six hundred and eleven deaths. So approximately thirty one percent of patients had died within that. Uh, time period. And again, the Kaplan-Meier estimates out to 10 years were 68.8%, out to 20 years about 31%. So very similar in terms of drop-off in, in uh, both cohorts. And the overall SMR was 083 
So again, that suggests an overall survival advantage, which persists in that group up to eight years, actually, before normalizing to rates consistent with the general population. And again, when we looked at the factors associated with mortality in that group, they were essentially the same. So uh, older age at surgery, male sex and diagnosis of inflammatory polyarthropathy, increasing socioeconomic deprivation, re-revision for periprosthetic infection, uh, greater number of medical comorbidities, but not aseptic re-revision. Okay, that's great, Liam. I think that's a really nice overview of, the, of how, like you say, how the, the findings of the two groups are relatively similar. So if you move on to the implication, I want to take a bit of time here just sort of discussing it. You know, the, I mean, the strengths of the study, you know, without question in terms of the size of the data, you know, it's using nationally linked data, very robust analysis performed without question. And it's shown that the SMR for patients undergoing primary revision replacement was lower than that of the general population remained so for several years, like you say, although, you know, one in four undergoing primary joint replacement died within 10 years, and that was one in three for revision. So Chloe, if I could maybe come back to yourself, what do you feel are really the key take-home clinical messages of the study, considering any potential limitations of, of the data? So I think for me, the key take-home message is that for us to accurately interpret implant survival or estimation, we really need to know the life expectancy of our patients and our specific arthroplasty patients as opposed to the general population. And using this robust national data set, we've shown that mortality is significantly less for knee arthroplasty patients than for the general population, 17 to 26% less, in fact. So this isn't one of these small differences that is statistically significant simply because it's a big data paper. They appear to be significant differences. These patients have significantly lower mortality. Despite this, however, by 10 years, a quarter of patients after revision have died. I mean, this is associated with inflammatory arthropathy, infection and deprivation, which we found to all be important associations with increased mortality, in addition to what you would expect, which was, you know, it would be expected that mortality would be associated with increasing age and with increasing numbers of comorbidities. But I think there's certainly new Mm. um, and novel information there. Now, obviously, any retrospective study has limitations in that we can only comment on association and not causation. So we don't know why the mortality rates are lower in the neoarthroplasty patients. We can hypothesize. And unfortunately, as much as I would like to, we can't say that knee replacements make you live longer. Unfortunately, we don't have the, the same data on non-operatively managed degenerative knee patients. So we don't really, we don't know um, how having knee osteoarthritis, for example, affects your, your mortality. Mm. We simply know the association between mortality and patients who are fit enough to undergo joint replacement surgery. And one of the main limitations, I think, of the SAP data set is, unfortunately, we don't have BMI data, which would be particularly useful and interesting, especially with a study like this, because um, studies from other populations So in Australia, uh, they found that BMI significantly affects life expectancy um, across the general population, not across the arthroplasty population, but you would expect it um, to do so among arthroplasty patients as well. Although other big data studies have shown, interestingly, BMI doesn't appear but it would be really good to to, to have that data. And that's something that that we're missing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a really nice overview, Chloe, of, like you said, the findings and just sort of caveating. I'm glad you brought up the point about the replacement potentially 
<laughs> making us live longer. But I mean, in the serious point, I think I'll maybe ask you and then I'll, I'll ask Nick as well. You know, you know, is is in terms of the hypothesis of that, you know, there is an argument there. You're reversing the effects of knee arthritis in terms of pain. You're improving quality of life. You're probably stopping progression of frailty and other factors. And I suppose the flip side of that, you're arguing maybe we are picking the more fitter patients in that patient group to operate on it. But there is something potentially there and maybe, you know, has bigger implications for the fact of the state that we're, a lot of us are in now where we're doing so little or there's such a long wait to get to joint replacements. Do you know? Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that the the, the effect that it has on mobility and frailty, you know, some patients that remain untreated end up being housebound and they have a general decline in their in their overall health as a consequence of that. And I'm sure that frailty plays a part. I'm sure that also, in addition to the fitter patients being selected to be referred, um, and also the fitter patients being able to do more and therefore be more limited by their degenerative joint disease. I think, um, obviously, when you're considering someone for arthroplasty, they're basically getting a full general health check in their in their 60s and 70s. And it's not unusual to pick up things like cardiac arrhythmias on, a, on an ECG that were asymptomatic before that maybe get highlighted in a pre-assessment clinic and therefore treated before the patient has their arthroplasty or cancers that are picked up because of anemias that, that, that are identified. So I'm sure that only plays a small role, but I think generally having a health check at that, at that age where you get these investigations done probably does pick up some comorbidity that would otherwise go unrecognised until it was more severe. No, absolutely. I totally agree. Nick, Nick anything you'd sort of add, add to that at all? Yeah, I think I think the second paragraph of the discussion that Liam wrote summarises that really well. Kind of it kind of highlights thirty seven percent increased mortality just associated with knee osteoarthritis, which is probably due to dysfunction, increase in frailty, cardiac problems, just because you're not stressing the heart as much as you should. Maybe not getting out. You can just imagine it, can't you? Everything just deteriorates just because you're just struggling, and then. Potentially, if you give somebody a knee replacement, you reverse all that. And 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 in the same boat as Chloe, and, and I'd love to say knee replacements save lives and make us live longer. But it may well be in this patient group that that, that might be what's happening. That it might well be that we are reversing this kind of de defunctioning uh, uh, of the patient, and, and and we'll probably see that over the next couple of years. I'm sure with our two year waiting lists. And, and worsening quality of life, preoperative and more perioperative. So I think that's one of the that potentially during those first years, you, your, your, your mortality should hmm. wonder whether if you shift those first years up, yeah, because obviously they're not getting the knee replacement when yeah. they should, whether whether their overall benefit from a mortality point of view may well come closer to the normal population because they're not getting it when they should. How do you interpret the findings associated with, you know, the factors associated with increased mortality, in particular, you know, things like periprosthetic joint infection or revision for that? I think all them's kind of common sense things that you'd probably guess at an MCQ, wouldn't you? If you, mm. you your mortality is bound to be raised if you haven't if you haven't a revision for infection, maybe a two stage, you have deep defunction in between. You've got a, a organism on board that may well kill you at some point in time. And, and there's certainly plenty of literature from an inflammatory point of view, even out with having a joint replacement that people with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, did die earlier or certainly used to. I don't know what it's like with DMARDs now, but mm. certainly you, uh, and their mortality is increased. But things like the increase in social deprivation, I think that's 
relatively new. I can't, I can't remember anything else in the discussion or any other literature off the top of my head that actually showed that. Mm. Uh, certainly a paper that I did previously with the five group, we, we showed that BMI increased mortality, but we didn't look at social deprivation. It was a smaller cohort, and we actually showed the exact opposite, that actually you died earlier if you had, uh, this is far bigger and more reliable. But from the deprivation point of view, I think that's that that that's something we can't answer. We, 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 as Chloe said earlier, this is just an association as opposed to causation. Hmm. And, and is it because those patients had to wait longer? There's quite a bit of evidence that if you come from a socially deprived background, it takes you longer to see the GP because you don't know whether you should present or not. So when you do present, it takes you longer to get referred. Yeah. And, and maybe it's a bit of that. Certainly de- social de- deprivation associated with earlier onset of osteoarthritis uh, that they are presenting late. And this may be what we could see in the future for everybody because they're having to wait longer for the joint replacement. I don't know. No, absolutely. And, and, and as you know, like we've done work in trauma-related deprivation, and it shows a similar thing in the poor outcome that these patients get. But I think the thing we've all found hard is that deprivation is so multifactorial, it's difficult to know what part of that deprivation, or, or maybe all of it, um, is contributing to, to that poorer outcome or poorer access to service. So maybe just to finish up, maybe Liam, if I come back to you, this is obviously a lot of your hard work, as we know. And you know, what, what are your thoughts maybe on the implications moving forward, or maybe what 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 work you think needs to be done next in relation to well i i think the implications have kind of already been mm. stated i suppose i mean i think you, care needs to be taken not to overstate these findings to kind of view them within um you know the the study design to accept that there is uncertainty but associations exist i think we have to um acknowledge the competing risk of death when we think about implant revision rate and I think as Chloe said patients they have different you know needs to those who are 80 and be aware of that when we're discussing these things with them and and then just finally again just to kind of mention periprosthetic joint infection is you know is a significantly associated factor which increases Kind of just adds to a body of work which is building which supports that but this you know it's a serious condition which can shorten a patient's lifespan yeah no absolutely i think that's 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 a very good point to highlight as as we finish up Liam. i think that is a really important take-home message well 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 everyone i think i'm afraid that's all we have time for today so thank you so much for taking the time to join us and, and congratulations to you all on a really excellent study that is a real valuable addition to the literature in the area it was great to have you all with us and to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through social media and like. Feel free to tweet or post about anything we've discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us.